This morning, we're finishing a brief month-long series where we've been thinking about what Grace Community Church is about. Um, We've been asking some questions like, who or what do we want to be? Um, You know, what are the things that shape and define our ministry? What are our values? And so far, We've, we've talked about several things. We've talked about our need for a gospel-centered ministry. We've talked about our need for transformational worship. Uh, we've talked about our need to be in and practicing authentic community with one another. And this morning, we're going to talk about our need to be, to be facing out in love to be outward-facing in love to the world. And so we're going to read together this passage, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Uh, It's one of Jesus' most famous stories or or parables. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you want to follow along in one of the Bibles in your pews, it's found on page 869. So Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Let's listen to God's holy and inerrant word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's go before Him and ask for His help in understanding this passage. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You that You have not left us in the dark, but You have spoken and Your Word is a light unto our path. And Father, this morning as we sit beneath Your Word, we pray that You would help us by Your Spirit. Help us to understand Your Word, apply this Word to our hearts, and change us, we pray, because of Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. There's a TV show 
called The Sons of Anarchy. Um, it is not a Christian show. Uh, it is, and I'm not recommending you go look it up and watch it either. It is, it's about a criminal motorcycle gang, and they are hard and ruthless and violent. Uh, but I want to share a quote from it because it illustrates that even when warped and distorted, there is an ideal that's stamped on all of humanity, right? So the quote comes from this character, Jackson Teller, uh, in a letter that he wrote to his young sons about growing up to be men, and this is what he wrote. He said, there will be days when you are faced, when you are forced to make decisions that affect the lives of everyone you love, choices that will change you forever. You reach an age when you realize that being a man isn't about respect or strength. It's about being aware of all the things you touch. Children face inward. They wallow in their own selfish needs. But men face out and take action on the needs of others. That's the ideal that we all recognize, right? That growing up and becoming mature means that you are no longer turned inward on yourself, but you're able to focus on the needs of those around you, not just on your own selfish needs. It means you're free to become self-forgetful in this life and, in, and be engaged in the needs of others, to face out and take action on the needs of others. We know it. We know that that is the only hope for our world and for our communities, which are so divided and so fractured and so broken and so full of suffering and so full of violence. The only way to bring healing to the brokenness we experience in our world and in our communities is by growing up, by stop, stopping to be turned in on ourselves and becoming self-forgetful and become able to f- face out and take action on the needs of others. And that's exactly what the Bible, that's exactly what Jesus calls us to. That's the ideal that's been stamped on all of humanity. We put that quote in the front of your bulletin or at the top of your bulletin from William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, where he said, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. The church exists to face out, right? It's not optional for the church. There is something unique about the followers of Jesus that frees them more and more to face out uniquely in love to the community around them. So I want us to look at this parable and talk about this outward-facing love, this facing out in love, by seeing three things in this passage. I want us to see the demanding picture of outward-facing love. I want us to see, second, the real enemy to outward-facing love in our lives. And then finally, I want us to to understand the only way to become outward-facing in love. So first, the demanding picture of outward-facing love. Jesus is talking with this man, this religious lawyer, and he gave this man a demanding picture of outward-facing love. When Jesus asked this lawyer to summarize the law, the man gave a good answer. It said, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind 
and your neighbor as yourself? And Jesus said it was a good, correct answer. And Jesus himself, you know, from reading through the Gospels, he used that same summary of the law um, by himself on, on, on other occasions uh, when asked about what God's greatest commandment was. So, so Jesus is a, and this man are saying, the law is about love. The law isn't just an arbitrary list of rules or codes of conduct for you to follow. It is a description of love. It's telling you how to love God, how to love your neighbor. The law is about loving God supremely, loving Him with every fiber of your being is what that's, that, that verse is about, right? Loving Him above everything else in your life, and it's about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about meeting your neighbor's needs with the same urgency, the same excitement, the same joy, the same passion and energy with which you meet your own needs. Loving your neighbor the same way you would love yourself, facing out in love to your neighbor. Now, we're going to come back to this man's question about who his neighbor was, but right now I want you to see how this parable really did give this man a demanding picture, the demanding picture of love. I mean, the real genius of parables and stories are that they force you to use your imagination. They, they force you to imagine the scene that Jesus is painting here and describing. And so, so that we start to form a picture in our minds of what love really looks like what outward-facing love really looks like in this world. So we need to briefly pay attention to some of the features of this picture. Jesus said his story on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was a famous road because it was such a dangerous road. In fact, there was a stretch of this road that's referred to, that was referred to as the Pass of Blood because it was there that thieves would lie and wait for unsuspecting travelers, right? And this Jewish man fell prey to these robbers attacking him on this road. And you can ask me later about why this man was Jewish. Jesus is basically using a Jewish story form that demands that this man that's attacked is Jewish, but it's a little bit complicated. Anyway, he was attacked, he was beaten, he was robbed, he was stripped, and he was left half dead in the middle of the road. And then Jesus says the very people that should have stopped to help him, a priest and a Levite, passed by. Now listen, it's not that they should have stopped because they were ministers or religious people, but because of what kind of ministers they were. These were the people in Israel who were responsible for mercy ministry, for caring for the physical needs of hurting people. And they passed by. And some people will say, well, maybe they stopped. They didn't stop because they were afraid of becoming unceremonially clean if they happened to touch a dead body, which was true. But I think the reason is probably a little bit more simple than that. We can just use our common sense to figure it out. Because I can think of one very good reason not to stop. And that is... This man is in a dangerous stretch of the road, and he wasn't dead yet. That means the people who did this to him are probably nearby, and they might just be waiting and watching to see if someone's stupid enough to help this guy so they can rob somebody else. 
So they, avoid, so they avoided this dying man. But then Jesus said a Samaritan came by, verse 33, and he took pity, or he had compassion. He saw him and he had compassion on him. Listen, of all the people, I mean, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. But this Samaritan, Jesus says, got involved with this Jew, and he applied first aid, and he stopped even when it meant risking his own life in that road, and he put the man on his own animal, his donkey, and he took him to an inn, and he gave the innkeeper money, like enough money that would would be enough for a month's stay at the end, and then he promised a follow-up visit. Right, and promised to reimburse any extra expenses that came his way. Jesus here, he was exploding the scope of love outward with this demanding picture. Why, of all people, did it have to be a Samaritan who helped this guy? I mean, these men were natural-born enemies. They were not alike. They did not see the world alike. They didn't worship the same way. Their views of religion were different. They had nothing in common. And take a look at verse 36, the end of the passage. Jesus asked this man after this story, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to this man who fell among the the robbers? And look, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Just a teeth-grinding acquiescence, fine, the one who had mercy on him. But see, it had to be a Samaritan because Jesus was exploding the scope of love outward, right, in this picture. Jesus was saying, your neighbor is absolutely anyone who is in need. And look at this demanding picture to see the links to which love goes. It assumes real life-threatening risk on behalf of another It's unbelievably costly, both materially and personally. He cared for every need of this half-dead man. Look, he met his neighbor's needs with the same energy, the same desire, the same passion, the same urgency with which he would meet his own needs. Now, before we move on to the next point, I have a question that I want us to think about. Why do you think Jesus told this man in verse 28, do this and you will live? I mean, do you think Jesus was saying, you can be loving like this if you try harder, if you discipline yourself, or if you get some basic pointers and tips on mercy ministry? I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Jesus was saying, I want you to look at this demanding picture of outward-facing love, and I want you to really think about it, and I want you to realize how far short you fall of that picture. Now, this is absolutely one of Jesus' most famous parables or stories that he ever told. It's a story loved and appealed to not just inside the church, but outside the church as well. And I was thinking about that this week, about how my non-Christian friends really love this story. This is a good story for them, right? And I think it is really because it resonates with this ideal that's been stamped on all of humanity. Because we read this story, and no matter who you are, whether you're a Christian or not, you look at this story and you say, that's how life should be. That's how we should treat others, right? That's what we were meant to be. We would want to be treated like that. We should treat others like this. 
But like this man, Jesus wants you to look at this picture and realize we can't do this. We are not doing this. We do not have the resources or the power in and of ourselves to live up to this demand of outward-facing love. And think about this. You can't, and this is what Jesus is saying to this man and to us this morning, you can't and you won't become an outward-facing loving person until you first realize you aren't. Little children are notorious for trying to assert their independence by uh, doing things themselves, right? And they, want, they say things like, I want to do it by myself, all by myself, right? And so a child wants to tie his shoes for the first time by himself. A little girl wants to ride her bike for the first time by herself, all by myself. And at first, as parents, we might intervene before the frustration or the fall occurs and say, no, I want to help you tie your shoes. I want to help you learn how to ride your bike. But if they keep pushing, a lot of the times we said, at least in our own parenting in my house, we've said, well, knock yourself out. Um, We'll see how it goes. Um, And we just wait for the tears the inevitable frustration that's going to show up, the shoelaces tied in knots, the scraped knees from falling off the bike. See, in order to learn how to ride a bike um, or tie your shoes for the first time, a child has to first admit that he or she can't ride the bike or tie the shoes. It's, It's not a perfect illustration, but listen, Jesus wanted this man crushed, crushed, beneath this demanding picture of outward-facing love. He wanted the reality of this demand to sink into his life because without getting this, you will never find the humility and you will never find the resources necessary to face out to the world in love. In the early 1900s, the London Times sent out a telegram to the prominent thinkers and writers of that day asking them to submit essays in response to this question, What's wrong with the world? Philosopher, theologian, scholar, author, G.K. Chesterton sent back four words in reply. Dear sirs, I am. You will never find the freedom to face out in love until you get that kind of humility. Until we realize that it's our inward childish wallowing in our own self-centeredness, that's gone to make up what's wrong with the world that we see and live in, until we admit that, we'll never become these outward-facing, loving people. Okay, second, let's talk about the enemy to outward-facing love. What's the enemy towards getting that humility that we were just talking about? What's the enemy that's keeping us from facing out in love. I didn't look at any new... Well, I did. I, I lied. I, I looked up the Mayweather-McGregor... Uh, um, fight, but uh, I didn't look at any other news headlines this morning, not on my phone, not on uh, the internet, not in a newspaper, not on CNN, not on Fox, none of that, but I can tell you what the basic headline of today is, because it's the same as it's always been, and it's this, nobody gets along with anybody, right? Nations are pitted against nations. Ideologies pitted against ideologies. Political divides. 
cultural wars, races warring against one another. Christian or not, we all know that that's not the ideal. So what, my question is, what's fueling the anger? What's preventing love and understanding from flowing freely out to others? What's the enemy to love? In a word, the enemy to love is and always has been self-righteousness. Luke, the narrator of this gospel, he, in this passage, gives us a little insight into this man's motivation in verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, he's saying, what's the bar I have to clear? What's the requirement I have to meet to prove that I'm enough, to prove that I'm right, that I'm valuable, that I'm acceptable? If we can be honest just for a moment, we as human beings, all of us in this room, we are all deeply insecure. No one has to tell us we're broken. We know there's an ideal, and we know we are not what we, sh- we were meant to be. And so what we're doing in life is we're always trying to justify ourselves, to prove we matter, to prove we're enough, to prove that we're right, to prove that we're worthy of love. What is it that fuels all human conflict, all wars, all genocide, all bigotry, all racism? It's all our efforts to justify ourselves, to prove our rightness, our self-righteousness. See, what happens when your race or your culture becomes the thing that gives you your value and significance in life? You can turn on your news to see this, right? Or you can look at this story and see what it is. If you get your identity, your worth, and your value, and your significance from being Jewish, then all Samaritans are beneath you. And you can really only love people who are like you. You can't be outward-facing in love to absolutely anyone who is in need. Can you see what's ha- what was happening in verse 29 with this man desiring to justify himself, asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He was trying to narrow and limit the, this demanding picture of outward-facing love. He was trying to make the demand of love that Jesus was talking about. He was trying to make it manageable. He was looking for the minimum requirement. He was grasping for something to assure himself that he was one of the good guys. In, in what ways... Are we trying to justify ourselves and become self-righteous? Listen, this man happened to ask, and who is my neighbor? But if we're not asking who, we're just asking something else to narrow and limit the demands to be outward-facing our love. See, if we're not asking who, then we're asking when, or we're asking what, or we're asking how much. Agree or disagree with me here, uh, and there are probably a few of you who will disagree, but I think the actor Jim Carrey is hilarious. And so I loved what he. uh, Okay, some applause. Wow. Um, Wasn't expecting that. Um, So I. I loved what he said last year. I mentioned this a time or two in the past, but last year at the Golden Globes, um, he was one of the presenters. And as usual, he walks out on the stage, and you're ready for it. You know he's going to be funny, and he's acting funny. And he came out to the microphone, and this is the first thing he said. He says, I am 
two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. And then he said, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And so the audience starts, even like some of you, starts to pick up on his sarcasm, right? And they start to chuckle. And then he said, and when I dream, I don't dream any old dream. He said, no, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor, Jim Carrey. And at this point, everybody in the room is laughing. The camera's panning around, and you see the audience laughing. He's got everybody with him, and then he says this, because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. And it got really quiet after that. Right? The genius of comedy kind of works like the genius of parables and stories because it pulls you along, it engages your imagination, and it kind of disarms you, but it's setting you up for the punchline, exposing you to truth from a different perspective. Here was a room full of people that Jim Carrey was speaking to, and everyone there was hoping for an award, hoping for acceptance and approval into the rarefied air of being a Golden Globe winning actor hoping to be justified by their work, to know I'm enough. I've got an award that proves it. So yeah, we look at this passage, this parable of the Good Samaritan, and there is great current and very specific application in this parable for the way our self-righteousness gets manifested in our own country through racism. But I don't want you to kid yourself here, because this desire to justify ourselves, it is the default mode of our hearts, and therefore it gets manifested in all kinds of ways. We'll use our socioeconomic status, or our political views, or our blue-collar or white-collar backgrounds, or our personality types, or our opinions on how we raise and educate our children, or our work ethic, or our achievements. We'll turn to anything to justify ourselves, anything that will help us feel like we're the good guys, and those people are what are wrong with the world today. And because self-righteousness is the default mode of our hearts, let me add this to what we've just said. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, thankfully, I'm not self-righteous in any of those ways he just mentioned, um, be very careful that you're not just being self-righteous about not being self-righteous, right? I'm so much better than those self-righteous people, right? My point And Jesus' point here in this passage is that the enemy to outward-facing love, it is lurking in all our hearts in self-righteousness. And the only hope to conquering this enemy is in conquering our self-righteousness. So with that, we come to our last point. So finally, the way to outward-facing love. I've been doing this long enough to realize that with all that I've said so far, our, our general temptation for, for a lot of us is that we would just start feeling guilty. Um, and I want us in this last point to look a little bit deeper into this parable because I don't think Jesus, I don't think Jesus was giving this guy a guilt trip. That would be a very superficial reading of this story. That would be like it was just an example. Work harder, 
be a good Samaritan. Uh, what Jesus was really doing in this story and with this conversation with this man is he was offering himself to this man. The way to outward-facing love is for you to come into the arms of Jesus. The scholar Douglas Milne, he wrote about this story. At a still deeper level, the Samaritan's love is a mirror of Christ's love for us. In taking the dangerous and lonely road into the far country of this wicked and violent world, he chose to serve our needs at infinite cost to himself through his own serving and suffering, culminating in the cross. Ultimately, Milne writes, Jesus is the good Samaritan who loved us with a neighbor's love and by his overcoming has set us free to love in return. See, Jesus wasn't giving this guy just another rule. He he wasn't saying just go be a good Samaritan, don't be a racist. He was offering himself to this man as the ultimate good Samaritan. Think about it like this. Who was Jesus speaking with? He was speaking with a Jewish lawyer. So who who did Jesus want this man to identify with in this story? Not the Samaritan, but the half-dead Jewish man left lying in the road, hopeless and helpless, in desperate need of costly, sacrificial love. His only hope was that someone would look at him and have compassion on him and show him mercy and grace. Jesus wanted this man, and he wants you this morning, to see that he is the ultimate good, good Samaritan. He came and walked this dangerous, lonely, wicked road for you. But so great was his love for you that he didn't just risk his life for you. He gave his life for you. To be a good neighbor, Jesus is saying, you need the ultimate good neighbor. If you're ever going to love someone else, you need to be loved by someone else. You need to be loved by Jesus. See, only to the degree that you see Jesus as the ultimate good neighbor to you, will you find the humility, or will you find the power to begin living out outward-facing love? Because that's what will humble you when you realize you couldn't do it on your own, but you needed Jesus to die for you. But that's also what will affirm you at the very same moment, that Jesus did die for you, and that shows you your value. And that shows you your worth. That shows you your significance. And the need to justify yourself is gone when you've been justified by the only one who really matters, who is Jesus. You know, I think it's right that passages like this, it's a familiar passage to a number of us this morning, um, but it's right that passages like, uh, like this make it so clear that we need to repent We need to repent of our self-righteousness that gets manifested in our lives in so many different ways as we're trying to justify ourselves. I read a great little article this past week uh, that was contrasting religious repentance with gospel repentance. And and I want to leave you with just a few thoughts about this. The author wrote, religious repentance is selfish and self-righteous, what we've been talking about. Religious repentance is selfish and self-righteous and bitter all the way down. Now, what does he mean by that? See, in religion, 
the purpose of repentance is to keep God happy with you, right? So that he'll bless you, so that he'll answer your prayers, so that he won't punish you. In religious repentance, then, all the sorrow over sin is over what sin does to us, its consequences or the threat of punishment. In religion, we hate We hate it. It's bitter all the way down. We hate to admit that we're wrong. We hate to say, I'm sorry. Some of the hardest words in the English language right there. I'm wrong. I can't. I'm sorry. Right? Listen, I want you to think about this. Even if Luke had not told us in this passage that this man was desiring to justify himself, it would have been obvious to us. Because one thing's very clear when he's talking with Jesus He's not about to admit defeat. He's not about to say, I can't. He's not about to say, I'm sorry. He's not about to admit his inability. Just tell me who my neighbor is. That's all I need to know. Do you realize then how different gospel repentance really is? What happens to you when you realize that the one who demands outward-facing love from you is the one who delivers you through his own outward-facing love. What happens when you realize that Jesus is your good neighbor who died in your place for all your sins? What happens when you realize your sin can now never bring you under condemnation or separate you from his love forever and ever? What happens when you realize that? Do Do you realize this? That sets you free. Finally, to be sorry for the sin itself. Sorry over what it does to God. Sorry over what it does to others. Because he has removed every bit of condemnation from you. And you are free. I mean, in, the, in religion, repentance, it is selfish, self-centered, and self-righteous, and it is bitter all the way down. But in the gospel, repentance is always God-centered. And it lets you repeatedly tap into the joy of knowing you are fully and completely loved in Jesus so that you have the strength, so that you have the humility, so that you have the power now to face out to the world around you in costly sacrificial love. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for, to what is most of us, to most of us, a very familiar story. But we pray that you, by your Spirit, would take up these words, that you would sear our consciences and our hearts with them, that we would be able to admit we have failed and we are unable in and of ourselves to face out in love. Oh, Father, but would you take us as well to the good news of the gospel that Jesus faced out in his love for us to fill us up so that we would never have a need of justifying ourselves again so that we would be free to face out to the world in love. Would you do that for us, for your glory and for our good? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.